0: So one of the things that we talked about last week was um, just we don't give enough credit to what God has called us to, and the enemy tries to take that away from us. How many of you, as you begin to pray on, um, you take a look at yourself and begin to pray on why were you born, what is your purpose for your life right now, and the meaning of your name, how many of you were convicted at how much the enemy is taking you, like, how many of you felt like the enemy has really taken you out of the very things that God's called you? Anybody? Yeah, I see a lot of heads Not. Yeah, yeah. I think it was probably one of the most eye-opening moments in my life is when I realized that the very thing that God had called me to or called me for was the very place the enemy took me out. So, um, Tonight, we are going to talk about our enemy, and we're going to talk a lot about him. But before we get into that, I really wanted to talk a little bit. I felt like I needed to go back to something I briefly said about the orphan spirit. And we'll get into um, the orphan spirit a little bit more later, maybe. Um, But I just felt like I needed to speak to this because... When we struggle in identity, one of the first places we're taken out is out of sonship. When identity is an issue in our life, sonship is not something that we walk in. We walk in an orphan spirit and mentality. Um, It comes, Satan was the first orphan. He was thrown out of heaven. Um, Fault of his own, but he was thrown out of heaven. And the very thing that he began to deceive, Adam and Eve against was out of fellowship with their father. You see, because Adam and Eve's father was God and immediately lost communication and they immediately, um, orphan spirit lives as if he has no home, living in their own way, existing as if no one is there for them. Uh, The secular world calls it a victim mentality Um, but it's the same concept as an orphan spirit or a victim mentality. Uh, Everything is everybody else's fault. In the story of the prodigal son, the oldest son had the orphan spirit. Um, Often someone who struggles with an orphan spirit lives in fear, rejection, and anxiety. Uh, The orphan heart is the heart of Ishmael. Warring against the spirit of Isaac, which is the spirit of the son. It's an inability to connect to the father, either because of sin that's been done against you or sin that you have done. Shame and fear come in. Living like a wanderer in a barren rain, unable to find peace, satisfaction, and purpose in your life. So when you think of the orphan spirit um, and the, the heart of an orphan and the heart of a sonship, um, I don't know if I put it up there or not. I don't think I did. You see God, and when you have an orphan's heart, you see God as a master. You see you're independent, you're self-reliant, you live by the love of the law, you're insecure, you lack peace, you strive for praise and approval, Boy, it really helps when you put glasses on, and acceptance of a man, a need for personal achievement as you seek to impress God and others, or no motivation to serve at all. So you can be either way. You either are constantly seeking acceptance, or you've checked out so completely, you have no motivation to do anything right. Um, You see Christian discipline as duty. You must earn God's favor. You must be holy to have God's favor, thus increasing a sense of shame and guilt. Your self-rejection from comparing yourselves to others constantly. You seek comfort or counterfeit affections such as addictions, compulsions, escapism, busyness, hyper-religious activity. You're competitive. You're jealous towards others' success and position. You accuse and expose in order to make yourself look good and make yourself feel better about you. You see authority as a source of pain. You distrust towards them and lack a heart attitude of submission. You have difficulty in receiving admonition you must be right so you can easily get your feelings, so your e- feelings aren't hurt and you close your spirit to discipline. You're guarded, you're conditional, you based upon others' performance as you seek to get your own needs met, or you're biased upon others' performances. You're um, you're in bondage, you feel like a servant and slave in everything that you do. Uh, your spiritual ambition, you have an earnest desire for some spiritual achievement and distinction and the willingness to strive for it, a desire to be seen and counted among the mature, and you fight for whatever you can. Where the heart of a son, you see God as a loving father. You're independent, but you acknowledge your needs. You live by the law of love, and you have rest and peace totally accepted in God's love and justified by grace, service that is motivated by a deep gratitude for being unconditionally loved and accepted by God, pleasure and delight in Christian disciplines. You want to be holy, but you don't want anything to hinder intimate relationship with God. You're positive and affirmed because you know you have such value to God. You seek times of quietness and solitude to rest in the Father's presence and his love. Your your humility and unity as you value others and are able to rejoice in their blessing and success. Love covers as you seek to restore others in a spirit of love and gentleness. You're respectful. You honor. You see them as ministers of God for good in your life, for those that are in authority over you. Um. You see the receiving of admonition as a blessing and a need in your life so that your faults and your weaknesses are exposed and put to death. You're open and patient and affectionate as you lay your life and agendas down in order to meet the needs of others. You have a close and intimate relationship with God. You are in complete freedom. You feel like a son and a daughter. And you daily experience the Father's unconditional love and acceptance and then be sent as a representation of his love to family and others. Sonship releases your inheritance. I believe a lot of us function out of an orphan's heart instead of a son's heart. The only, the other thing I'll say about this is an orphan spirit can't be something you pray against. It can't be something you pull down like a stronghold. It is something that has to be healed by a father's love, so you seek healing in those places. Often, um, counseling is a good place to start with that because it's usually in a deep-rooted, either a lack of father or often you see it in um, victims of sexual abuse or any type of abuse. Um, I functioned in in an orphan spirit, like I extremely competitive. If I won, I was okay. If I lost, I lost it completely. Um, Everything I did was to seek acceptance by man and by God. All of my works of service was done so that I was okay with God because I really thought that that's what made me okay with God. And I lived most of my life in an orphan's spirit instead of someone who functioned out of a heart as a daughter of the King of Kings. Um, It's beautiful to be on this side of freedom from that. I couldn't handle if somebody else was promoted, I couldn't handle if even my sisters did better than I did at anything, like, I just felt like the worst failure at life. It's just a horrible place to be. So if you struggle with that, I have a book for you. One of the things that I tell anybody, I didn't. it's over there, is all the material you get in your hands, you get to learn and glean what you need from it, but if you do nothing with it, then you'll stay stuck. But if you want to change, then you've got to do the work to change. So if, if Orphan Spirit hit home with you, then there is a book. It's called Healing the Orphan Spirit. Um, I forget the author. It's Leif someone, and I can't think of his name right now, right offhand. Uh, but I have that book in my bag that I'm willing to share with you and get you that information. Um, but it's a great book on the Orphan Spirit. And I only say that because I just started reading it. Um, Dr. Shelley put it in my hands for me. Yeah, it's Healing the Orphan Spirit by leif Hetland, and it's a Sonship series. So I really just felt like we needed to cover that. Um, if you deal, maybe, I, I was thinking of Amy, uh, you deal with a lot of people that walk around with orphan spirit, um, it's a good book to read as well. If you're gonna be in any kind of prayer ministry or healing ministry, that's a good book, a good counseling book, so. All right, any questions on the orphan spirit? I used to think that only women functioned in the orphan spirit, but I am finding that more and more men now function they, um, a lot of the statistics believe that the reason that we have so much crime in our communities and that it's escalated so much is because there's no fathers in the home anymore and which causes an orphan spirit to come on children. All right. So we're going to jump into knowing your enemy and his tactics. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6 and 12, we'll be in and out of the Bible a lot. So I am not a teacher that does a lot of the talking I will be calling on you. And I know that you're adults and it's a different realm, but that's okay. You'll have to get over me. Um, So fight, a good fight of faith tells us that we are actually in a fight, right? Uh, Dr. Shelley says you're in a street fight for your salvation journey every single day. Um, Good football teams study their opponents before they get to the field so that they are prepared. Jesus focused on God, but he spent a lot of time knowing his enemy as well, even talking about him, believe it or not, as he prepared so that he could recognize the enemy's voice. Listen, when we're unaware of our enemy and how he moves and how he talks, how he lies and deceives, and all the things. When we're unaware of the way our enemy functions and work, we can be taken out easily. The other coin to that is if we focus so much on our enemy, and I said it last time, there's two faults to, to spiritual warfare. You either spend too much time focusing on the enemy, or you don't spend any time focusing on the enemy. And there really needs to be a balance of both. But tonight we are focusing in on the enemy. This will be the last time in spiritual warfare that we spend all of our time talking about our enemy. Most of the time I'll be talking about your role in spiritual warfare after tonight. So if you can know your enemy, you can resist your enemy. And that's when he flees from you. If you know your enemy, that is when you become more than a conqueror in your spiritual journey. But as we study out our enemy tonight, it's really important that we never lose sight of God's perspective about our enemy. So turn with me to Ephesians 6.12. 6.12 6.12 says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, and against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So as we study this out, that's what we need to remember. That's the fight. That's who we're against. But Ephesians 1.16 to 21 says this, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God the glorious father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope as he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. So the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that conquered death, which comes from our enemy lives inside of us. So as we study out our enemy, we must remember God's perspective, and that is that the enemy is under our feet, not the other way around, okay? Let's not make him bigger than he is. And Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms because we are united in Christ. Right. And Donna Silvia, in her book, Shifting Atmospheres, she says, so yes, we're in a war against an enemy. But the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And we are seated in heavenly places. A position that is high above every ruler, every authority, every power, and every dominion. There is absolutely no reason that we should fear, ever. It's this very identity the enemy wants to keep you from, which... Hell cowers at the spirit of God within you. When we understand who we are and whose we are, we become Christ-like and we're an unstoppable force that batters the enemy's ranks. So, I'm going to read you a little story. And this should be our response to the enemy every single time he shows up at our doors. This is one of my favorite stories, and Chris Bolton all of them read this one often in their sermons, and I laugh every single time. All right, so a traveling preacher, preacher told a story about this while pre- preaching at Bethel. Years ago, he was on a ministry trip with his longtime friend and mentor, Bob Jones. During the first night, Bob woke up to see a very large demon standing at the foot of his bed. Now, how many of you have ever seen a demon? Anybody? Yeah, me too. It was 12 when I ran into my first one. That's ministry does. Um, so during the first night, Bob woke up to see a very large demon standing at the foot of his bed, and he commanded it to leave and went back to sleep, only to be woken up again later by the same spirit. And so instead of partnering with fear, which often happens when you encounter anything demonic or even remotely hard, right? When our finances fall out behind, underneath us, what do we do? We immediately begin to fear and panic. When our health issues begin to arise, we immediately fear and panic, right? That's our first initial reaction, which is partnering with the enemy. Instead of partnering with fear, Bob said, oh, it's just you. Go bother Larry. The unclean spirit vanished, and Bob enjoyed the rest of his night. The next morning, Bob ran into Larry downstairs, who appeared quite exhausted. When he told Bob he had wrestled throughout the night with a demon, Bob simply informed him, I know, I sent him to you. (laughs) Who needs enemies when you have friends like that? But... It may seem cruel, but Bob used this as a lesson to teach Larry something important. The enemy feeds off of fear. Larry could have renounced partnership with it and sent the demon away. Instead, he gave in to fear, and this allowed the unclean spirit to harass him throughout the entire night. So too often, as believers, we entertain the enemy, with our fear. So it's really important that as we study him out, fear does not arise at all in our hearts or in our spirits. Okay? So in the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned 27 times. In the New Testament, Satan is found 33 times. In the New Testament, the devil is found 33 times. Satan in the Old Testament was an undefeated enemy. Satan in the New Testament, even though he is mentioned more, is defeated. So keep that in mind as well. He's already been defeated. He was defeated the moment Christ raised from the dead, when he took the keys of hell and death from our enemy. There are many Christians who struggle throughout their entire salvation journey trying to follow Jesus but fail. And I think one of the main reasons is is because they know nothing about their enemy and how to resist. And if they do know him and about him, they live in fear of him and allow him to control their life. Turn to 1 Peter 5, 8. I think Mark preached a sermon about this a long time ago, and it was one of those ha, aha moments for me. First Peter 5, eight says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Mark said, he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not a roaring lion. He thinks he is and he can be as big or as small as your mind makes them out to be. But we are a people that is supposed to be staying alert. All right. So some of the names of the the devil is Lucifer or adversary. The Bible tells us a lot about Satan. In fact, immediately after God created Adam and Eve, the very next thing the Bible talks about is Satan. The Bible tells us nothing about what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, but it straight away tells us that Satan came into the garden and brought sin, confusion, leading Adam and Eve away from God. And that is found in Genesis 3. I think we're on slide 19, Mark. Slide 19. The enemy lied to Adam and Eve, and he continues to lie to us to get us to believe falsehood about ourselves, about others, and mainly about God. Agreeing with the enemy gives us unhealthy mindsets that can cause us to partner with sin and act out of our old natures which should be dead in our life. Romans 6.11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The master of deceit has caused many believers to backslide back into their old natures. The whole purpose of the enemy is to cause Christians to walk away from God. Because it's in walking away from God that death takes place in our lives. Right? Salvation comes with eternal life. No salvation in our life, no acceptance of Jesus Christ into our hearts is eternal hellfire and death. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Says that now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time some will turn away from the true faith and they will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Ephesians 2 1 and 2 says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at war. I didn't pronounce the rest of that. And 1 John 4, 3 says, but if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, then that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. So why does the Bible tell us about Satan immediately after he tells us about the creation of man and woman? What's your guess? Let us know he's there. Yeah. He wants us to make us aware so that we are alert. Dr. Shelley Hogan says, Satan uses darkness to blind us to his devices, to blind us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to blind us from daily light as we walk. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. In this world, there's a military force that can operate in pitch darkness while its enemy sleeps or falters, this particular unbeatable. Let me say that again. In this world, a military force that can operate in pitch darkness while its enemies sleep or falters is practically unbeatable. When an enemy can come in because you're sleeping and not aware that he is there, you will be taken out. And it's really hard to defeat him once you've given him footholds in your life. So don't be found sleeping. That's why we're doing this class. 1 Peter 5.8, we mentioned it earlier, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So there's four Ds of our enemy that he operates in every single time he operates. And he starts out as the deceiver. To deceive is to cause someone to believe something that is not true, typically in order to gain personal advantage. Satan knew he couldn't have come close to winning in a confrontation against God, but if he could deceive God's creation into giving him dominion, authority and power in the earth, tricking them into yielding and obeying him, he could become their master. And then he could begin to thwart the kingdom of God. Right? That's why he was kicked out of heaven to begin with, was so that he could become God and reign on God's throne. And then God created man in the image of God and gave him power and dominion over the earth. And the first thing the enemy came in is he deceived Eve and Adam, and they handed him the keys to the earth at that point in time. You'll see that in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the ser- serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. She already was made in the image of God. Now the enemy is saying you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate revelations 12:9 this great dragon the ancient serpent called the devil or satan the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels and john 8:44 says for you are the children of your father the devil and you love to do the evil things he does he was a murderer from the beginning He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The thing the enemy starts off with always is deceit. Satan's deceptions distract us from living by God's true word, deflects us from walking in his revealed path, and it dilutes our effectiveness, in his appointed work or call on our life. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That is why I ate. What's crazy is the enemy is so good at what he does, we think it's our self-speaking in our mind a lot of the times. We think there are our thoughts, and the things that we're thinking. He can also twist words, and we'll get into that a little bit later. He twists; he can actually twist what people say in order to make it become a deceit in your mind. You should have heard what they said. That's how a lot of divisions happen in the church, is deceit and lies. Romans one, this is probably one of the saddest, These, these verses, I, I get just saddened every time I read them. And um, Romans 1, 23, and 25. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, and birds and animals and reptiles. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. I, I can't tell you how many people have been deceived into believing lies about God and worshiping other things, including people, instead of him, even after experiencing him. And it, it, it breaks my heart. It just, I, I see it all the time and it, it wrecks me every single time. Zechariah ten two says, Household gods give worthless advice. Fortune tellers predict only lies, and interpreters of dreams pronounce falsehoods that give no comfort. So many people are wandering around like lost sheep, and they are attacked because they have no shepherd. Listen, the enemy will use people to deceive you. If you think fortune tellers and any of those that work in that realm, listen, that's a gift of God. The enemy can only counterfeit what God's already done. Those are gifts from God that he likes to use in the church. But the enemy deceives people and they use it for him. So, it's a right God-given gift but it's twisted and the source is all wrong. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15 says, but I am not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Satan is a commander of a large host of demons who are opposed to God and his children and they are dedicated to the task of defeating those who have accepted the Lord's salvation. The Bible describes him as a deceiver, a liar, a murderer, an accuser, a tempter, a prince, and an evil one. He beguiles and seduces and opposes and deceives and sows, tears, and hinders, and tempts and blasphemes. He is personal. He is intelligent and he is destructive, and his end goal to deceive you is to pull you away from the truth of God and his love for you. How many of you have ever questioned God? Why do I ever, why why am I even serving you right now, God? What good has it done me? Where do you think those thoughts are coming from? The moment you begin to question why you're walking with God is the moment that you need to say, oh, wait a minute. Enemy, you're a liar. That is a lie. It is not truth. Those are not your thoughts. Those are thoughts of the enemy. He Whispers in our ears. Any questions on deceiver? We're going to get into that big time next time is, is I'll talk about the gateways the enemy uses in your own personal life to get in, to cause you and use all of these things that we talk about. He'll use these very things by entering in, and we'll talk about mine a lot, because there's so much study. I'm reading a book right now. I'm usually reading about five books a time right now. It's just between Mark's reading list and Dr. Shelley's reading list and my own personal reading list, I'm um, and I'm reading it Switch on Your Brain by Carol Leaf, Dr. Carol Leaf. It is like wrecking me. I it's like blowing my mind, and it's all about switching on our brain and how the enemy controls our brain and everything, and, and so it's really good, and we'll get into depth about thoughts and whispers and all of that next time, and I cannot wait. It's my favorite lesson to teach, my favorite, and it's the most helpful. Out of all that I teach, the next class is by far the most helpful, so yeah, I just have to wait till then. Yes, he's only given me one. Dr. Shelley's given me, I have pages, so I'm reading two of hers and two of my own personal. All right, so the second way the enemy uses is he's a divider. So he's a deceiver first. He always starts with deceiving. The second thing that he does is he divides. He separates to disagree or to cause to disagree. The devil is rather one who, spiritually speaking, does everything in his power to separate us. There's a bunch of Greek words, diabolos, I don't know, I can spell it, I can't pronounce it, D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S, in Greek meaning, the one who divides. That's what uh, his name means, the one who divides. From the vertical link, uniting true believers with God, in which alone saves them from solitude and death. He goes on to say, Luke Ferry goes on to say, the Greek words dia and blalos mean a cross who throws, respectively. Put together, they identify someone who throws a cross, one who creates a chasm um, causing divisions in relationships. He breaks down and divides in relationships, especially in spiritual relationships, and with God. It is the fundamental and most profound element of the spirit of the Antichrist. If you look into history and the world around us in a sense of dominating, bound down to me kind of force that seeks to divide people and break things, especially in relationships apart. Um, Look at the church and the rate of divorce that is in the church even. Christian marriages. The purpose of division for the enemy is isolation. He wants you isolated. How many satanic churches are there? Or denominations? One. How many Christian denominations do we have? And the list is long. Long sad. We are one body. We're not one church. We're one body. And the enemy divides and separates so that we're isolated and an easier target for him. Division is personal alienation between Christians caused by sinful attitudes. It is rooted rooted in attitudes like envy, kind of like the orphan spirit, pride, selfish ambition. And it manifests itself in relationships broken by Unresolved anger, personal resentment, malice, bitterness, unforgiveness. This is what causes demonic disorder and gives the devil opportunity to set Christians against one another and ravage the church. Cain and Abel is a perfect example of division and an attitude of someone who couldn't handle someone else doing better than him. Saul and David is another example of division. David was innocent. (laughs) I mean, he was crowned not because he asked for it, but Saul couldn't handle it. And it came in and it divided him against David. Division stunts church growth and evangelism in our communities. It destroys marriages and family units, and it causes evil to grow in communities. It causes confusion, offense, discord. Where there is division, we become an easy prey and a target for the enemy. It's like a lioness who's looking for dinner. Who do they go for, the strongest in the the group? No looks for a wounded or a baby all by themselves off to the side. Your enemy is no different. So if you feel division coming in your heart against especially leadership or spiritual authority that God has placed you under, know it's a tactic of the enemy. If you feel divided in your marriages, know it's a tactic of your enemy. Be aware of that so you're fighting the right enemy. Too often we fight each other instead of the enemy. And and churches don't grow. I would not want to be a part of a church that can't get along and say, you know what, I just agree to disagree. I, I have different, I don't believe like you, but that's okay. I don't care if you don't believe in tongues, I believe in them. Who cares? What's the difference? At the end of the day, what's the difference? But we divide over the craziest things and it breaks my heart. When you function in orphan spirit, spirit, the last thing you want to do is be a part of a family because it's painful. That's your enemy. Yes, there isn't one. What I said or what Amy said? I, I don't know. What did I say? (laughs) It's not in my notes. Oh, When you have an orphan spirit or an orphan heart, you don't wanna be a part of a family because it's painful. You're reminded of how much you don't have. You're reminded of everything that you lack. You're reminded of everything that you wished you had. And the crazy thing about an orphan spirit is it's available to you too. Well we don't see that. It's like Eve. She had she was like she was created in the image of God, and the enemy told her, if you eat this fruit, you'll be you'll be like God. She already was like God. All right. Moving along. The third D that the enemy functions in after deceives and divides is, thank you, diversionary. One who distracts our attention from something more important onto something of lesser value. It's an instant of turning something aside from its course intended to distract attention from something more important. We see this in young girls all the time in relationships easily distracted by filling a hole in their heart for an ungodly man see it all the time it causes us to focus on lesser things the enemy uses things like anxiety and fear and worldly pleasure to turn away from the course that God has on us to turn away from our call a diversionary war occurs when a state's leaders begin a conflict to divert attention from an ongoing domestic issue. We see it in our politics all of the time. Our enemy does the same. When God calls us into more of him, into higher levels, to go deeper in intimacy with him, the first thing that happens is a crisis comes up or a distraction or exhaustion. If, you ha- if you're going into your devotions every single day, and exhaustion comes on you at those moments. That's a tactic of the enemy. It it pulls you away from what you. Listen, I set this time aside for God, and I'm going to go into here. And for the next hour, I'm all God's. And all of a sudden, you're yawning and can't keep your eyes open. That's your enemy. I Don't get lost. This is it's God time. Fight against it. Resist him. He has to flee. Dr. Shelley calls them takeouts. In ministry, Mark and I see this take place all the time. Just when someone's about to step into new heights in leadership in the church, a crisis takes place in their life and it sets them backwards and they fall out of leadership and never go forward with what they feel God has called them to. The co- enemy comes in with his diversionary war that often ends. Or takes the leader out. Or setting them backwards significantly. We must be aware of the tactics the enemy uses to keep us out of going deeper and further and closer with God. And answering the call on our life. Chris Follatin says, our enemy attacks attacks the most right before a promotion or a new spiritual Terran God has called us to. Look at Nehemiah. Look at Joshua going into the promised land. Some examples of people that had diversionary wars come up against them in the Bible was Esau and Jacob, David and Bathsheba, and Samson and Delilah. Sometimes it's something as simple as making us exhausted when we're going into our Bible study, and sometimes it's a really good-looking guy who just keeps coming in your path, and this must be a God thing. He just keeps showing up everywhere that I'm at, and he must be meant for me. You think that sounds stupid, but I see it all the time, all the time. And I see people taken out all the time with diversionary wars. Yeah. Yeah. How many of you have ever been studying online? Like sometimes I do my Bible reading online and a pornography will come across. Do you think that was a tactic or just a coincidence? I don't believe in coincidence, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's the enemy, the diversionary war. We give up so much to have a momentary pleasure, a carrot the enemy puts in front of our face. And trust me, your enemy knows your weakness. He's not stupid, he's heard you talk about your struggle. He's heard you, seen you wrestle with the struggle in your life. He's not stupid. He will tempt you. We give up new heights with God for circumstances that take us out instead of trusting and resting in the arms of God. We freak out, pull back in our salvation journey, and these new heights that God is calling us to never get reached or delayed for years. The fourth D and final D, it's the last weapon that he pulls out after he's tried the other three. It's discouragement. It's funny because discouragement was the weapon of choice for my enemy for two days. Like things just kept flying at me and I just got overwhelmed with discouragement and I felt depression come on me. And honestly, I did everything I knew to do and I thought, boy, this is just not shaking. (laughs) It's not going anywhere. Um, then I had to come out of agreement with fear and frustration and had to come out of agreement with the things the enemy put in front of me that I partnered with so that he then had, when you partner with fear, for me it was frustration. I'll just be real vulnerable. I'm teaching, might as well, why not? At the, the house project at our, our, I'm really thankful for the house. I don't want this to come ungrateful. I am very thankful for the house that we live in but I am a hostess and I love to cook and my kitchen is not functioning. So for a few years now, I've been very frustrated with our kitchen and then we have some money, we're gonna redo the kitchen and the numbers that are coming in are a lot higher than we anticipated. Mark didn't, he anticipated much higher. I'm, I'm like the faith girl, oh no, we're gonna get some good numbers. Well, they weren't, they were really high and so I just got discouraged and then things at work begin to happen that cause more frustration and discouragement. So I begin to partner with the enemy with a bad attitude and my frustration. So then when I partner with him in those places, I give him a legal right to me. And so he began to bombard me and I'm getting madder and ticked. And my poor husband, I thank God, he has people in his life that he can vent to and just say, oh, I'm gonna kill my wife And things don't change real soon. But then see, he partners too, but that's another story. Anyways, so I, last night, and I'm doing everything I know to do, forgetting that I partnered. I I went to bed last night and I went, you're an idiot. You just part, for two days you've been fighting this. And the only reason you're fighting this still is because you partnered and you didn't come out of agreement and seek forgiveness. So when you partner with the enemy, especially in discouragement, you have to say, Father, forgive me. I have listened to the lies of the enemy and I have allowed frustration and anger to come up in my heart and I've partnered with him and now I'm depressed and I'm discouraged. I've lost hope. I'm thinking I'm just gonna have to live like this forever and just get over it. What's the big deal? Those are lies. God, your word speaks something different than what the enemy's been telling me for two days. It's the same with sickness. One of the things I I say to people in sickness is, remember the blood speaks a better word. Yes, this is your diagnosis, but God is still a miracle worker. So don't lose hope that that sickness can disappear. Because when you get into hopelessness, discouragement sets in, and this is the most dangerous place to be. Because discouragement is dissatisfaction with the past, it is distaste for the present, and it's distrust of a future that God has. It's an ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday. It's indifference to the opportunities of today and insecurity regarding strength for tomorrow. It is unawareness of the present beauty, unconcern for the needs of our fellow men, Unbelief in the promises of old. It is impatience with time, immaturity of thought, and impoliteness with God. When discouragement comes in, fatigue takes hold. Setbacks throw you in, and failures upon failures start taking place. Discouragement is where people stay there too long, take their life because they have partnered with an enemy in suicide. The this, this spirit of suicide attaches in those places. Discouragement can take you out of salvation so fast because you think, you say things like, why, why do I even bother? That's when you begin to question God. Well, This isn't getting any better. There's no hope. And where there is no hope, where there is no vision for a future, nothing better beyond this moment, That's when people perish. And church, I'm going to tell you, I see this more and more in ministers. We need to be praying for those who are on the front lines in ministry. This discouragement for a pastor takes them out of the ministry. It's what happened to my dad and he spent 20 years out of the ministry, and out of church. Loved God, didn't like people anymore. And so he isolated, and he was almost taken out by the enemy. Discouragement is where suicidal thoughts and tendencies come into play. Discouragement is where depression kicks in and mental health begins to skyrocket and come out of control. Anxiety and fear become your very breath instead of hope and peace. David wrestled with discouragement over and over again. He was troubled and battled, battled deep despair. and many of the Psalms, he writes of his anguish, his loneliness, his fear of the enemy, and his heart cry over sin and the guilt he struggled with because of it. We also see his huge grief in the loss of his son in Second Samuel 12, 15 and 23. In 1833, he says, in other places, David's honesty with his own weaknesses gives hope to us who struggle today. None of the four Ds are impossible to get through because all of them are done by an enemy who's been defeated. And so there is hope. Don't lose sight of that as we're talking about this. David in Psalms 38.4 says, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. How many have been there? Psalms 42.11 says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disrupted within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Listen, when discouragement goes unchecked, it becomes a much bigger problem like substance abuse and death. Remember that our enemy is defeated. And when discouragement is coming on you, it's him grasping at straws because he already tried the other three and it didn't work. Remember, Ed Savasso, another really good um, warfare book, Um, I can't think of the name right now and I don't have it with me, said we can serve him and his cohorts an eviction notice and they must leave. You must battle like you believe you have authority to kick the enemy out or he will keep kicking you around. Two things we must never lose sight of. Go ahead. Satan is committed to our destruction, but and that's found in Revelations 12:17. Sorry, I lost my. Jesus came to destroy his workings. your homework is i have three pages of different things that are describes the enemy in your bible and you can do whatever you would like yes we don't have time to go through them but we'll start out next time going through them so what you'll do is you'll look up the scripture and it'll tell you something about your enemy that you might not have known. So on that sheet, the first one is, it's Revelation 2.9. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. So that tells us that he has his own synagogue, which is a house of prayer. So it just goes into descriptions of your enemy that you might not have known. So I want you to fill those out and we will go over them as we start next week. Any questions on what we've talked about with the four D's? with deceit, divide, diversionary, any questions, any input, absolutely, I experienced that in Panama, the the first time I was teaching this in Panama, the very first time, I never taught spiritual warfare in another country. In fact, I hardly ever teach it here. It's just something I've been studying my whole life because I've had so many encounters with a demonic growing up in ministry. Um, so I get there, and, you know, you hear stories, but you just hear stories. And I get there, and I'm laying in bed the very first night, and I'm, I'm hearing these drums play. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. And it's kind of creeping me out because it was... Weird drumming. It wasn't normal drumming, and they started around midnight. And I'm laying in bed, and all of a sudden, I saw a black figure come into the room, and I knew immediately it was demonic. Just you know, when they come into the room, and he had a black blanket, and he threw it over me, and started choking me out. And so for 45 minutes, I wrestled with this demonic being, and the immediately the first thing that comes on you is like, I'm going to die, like I'm I'm dead. This is it. It's over. I'm in Panama, I'm going to die and never get to teach this. And so, but immediately the Lord said, don't partner with fear. He has no authority over you. So for 45 minutes, I wrestled with not partnering with fear and couldn't breathe. So I was trying to get it off. But, and I just kept scripture, kept pouring into my heart. And I just began speaking them out in my head. And then the Lord said, speak them out loud. So then I started speaking it out loud. In 45 minutes, wrestling, it went away and never bothered me again that was one of many things that happened when I was in Panama for the first week and then the second week was even crazier and the third week was even crazier but yes it is when you come face to face with a demonic your first initial reaction is instant fear but you have to remind yourself in those moments that I who are you like the story that I started out with go bother somebody else you're not going to bother me And you may wrestle for a while, but don't ever partner with fear in those moments because he's a defeated enemy. You need to tell yourself that over and over, especially the chances of running into stuff like that unless you're going and doing deliverance ministry are slim in America. Do I think we'll see more of it? Yes. Because of the drug use and because of the alcoholism in our community and because of the brokenness of our world? Yes, I do believe we'll be seeing more of it. I do believe we possibly could come face-to-face in ministry with broken people. Yes, absolutely. Um, My first experience ever with a demonic presence, um, my dad was in ministry. We were living in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We lived in a parsonage, but it was attached to the church. And my mom taught at a school, and my dad did some side jobs. And we came home from school, and our whole house was trashed like it was burglarized. I, we just thought we got robbed. I mean, like literally every drawer in the house was completely open. Everything in the drawers were all over the place. And so my mom is like gonna pick up the, you no know, cell phones then. So we, she goes to pick up the phone to call my dad. I don't know why she didn't call cops first, but when she went to pick up the phone, the radio in the other room came on and a hideous, horrible, demonic laugh came out of the radio. I'm 12. Okay, actually, my sister was 12, so I was 13 in there. Anyways, she um, she said, "Angel, go turn that radio off." So I went in, I turned off the radio, and I came back in, and she's trying to get a hold of my dad. Still, she called. You know, it's not an instant call. Um, calling the person where he was working, and the washer came on all by itself. And my mom's frustrated now. She's like, "Angel." go shut the washer off. I can't even hear. So I go shut the washer off. And as soon as I hit off on the washer, the demonic voice out of the radio came out and started laughing and told us to leave. And my mom hung up the phone and called my grandmother who is a warrior. And my sister who was a little bit younger than me freaked out, got up on the table and was crying and I was filled with tongues. So I just started speaking in tongues because that's what you do. I don't know. So what I did was a gut reaction. And so at that point in time, we realized that it wasn't someone that robbed our house. We believed it was demonic at that time. And so my dad comes home in the meantime, my grandmother's on the phone praying with us. And my dad called the elders of the denomination that we were a part of, and they were gonna come and pray over our house because that's what you do when you have visitors that don't belong there. My mom said, Angel, I want you to go up in my room and I want you to hang up clothes up in my closet. And they had this weird closet. My dad created a closet in the whole of the house. I'll just say, our parsonage is beautiful compared to what I lived in when I was a little girl. So I will throw that out, thank you, Jesus. And so he created, so I had to step up into this black hole of a closet and turn on a little tiny light that you could barely see. So I'm hanging up clothes. And I turned around to hang something on my dad's side, and I came face to face with a demonic presence. And I was singing at the time worship songs, and the demonic, like this, was screeching. So the more he screeched, the more I sang worship songs at the top of my lungs. And he ended up leaving, but I, I don't know why I wasn't, like, petrified, but I wasn't. I just kept singing. And he'd get louder, and I got louder. And that was my first like real encounter with a demonic, many stories like that. So it's no wonder that my passion is spiritual warfare because I've seen it so much growing up. And that was in America. I mean, so I've seen lots of stuff like that in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where we lived at the time. So, But it is real. It is very prevalent. And the enemy disguises himself often as your own thoughts and other people and he uses deceit, he causes division, he deviates and he discourages. So you know when discouragement has started to settle in that he's gone hard and he's already taken you through some of the other steps or he wasn't able to get you in the other three places. So now he's bringing discouragement. Discouragement is usually the last straw that he uses. And if discouragement, you've already been in the battle in the other three areas and discouragement settles in and you lost in the other three areas, that's when it's the most dangerous for you when discouragement takes place. Any questions? Y'all are very quiet now. If you ask some of my students that I taught here, (laughs) let's pray. I'm going to get you to talk more, I promise. Jessica, will you close us in prayer, please? Man is made of body, soul, and spirit. It should not surprise us. The enemy attacks us in all three areas. So next week, we will talk about how to prepare for battle in those places. Remember, Jesus came to destroy his working. So when fear tries to get you later, as you try to remember some of these stories, um, if you want to know some more stories, let's have lunch. I can tell you lots had lots of encounters, craziness. Um, He's a foe that is under your feet, and he is defeated. He has no authority, only the authority that you partner with him. So don't partner with him. No questions? You are so quiet. Findings that they're finding now is that mental health like, a long time, for a long time, they said your brain, once it thinks a certain way, once the neural paths are already etched into your mind, they can't be changed. But now they're saying that is not truth. That if you can learn to take hold of your thoughts and retrain the way that you think, imagine that, a biblical concept, that you can get over most of the mental health diagnosis. They say that 2% two to 25% of mental health is incurable without medication, two to 25%. And that is not a biblical finding. That is a bunch of neurological people who study this out have come to that finding. And it's a new, like within the last five years or so. So this book is really good. Now this is biblically based, But she just takes their findings and says, isn't it interesting that you find that in scripture? Isn't it interesting that you find this in scripture? And then it's a 21 day brain detox in the end so that you can learn to change your thoughts. I highly recommend that if you struggle in your thought life. Um, My favorite thing to talk about is capturing your thoughts because it's the biggest weapon that I've learned to utilize over the last year. So can't wait to talk with you about that next, next class about the gateways and the way to fight. So, but yes, Caroline Leaf, Dr. Caroline Leaf. Yes. Absolutely. It's crazy. And it's really cool because when you have biblical principles that you've heard your whole life and you wonder like in my world, in the mental health world, it's like, does it really work? But then Great examples is um, not that, and I'm going to point you out because you just walked into the room, not that Tiffany doesn't still have troubles and struggles like every other believer, but her life is completely changed because of what she's putting in her mind. So and we'll go on to talk about that more next week about the gates, that we are the protector of the gates the enemy tries to get in and how to protect those gates that God has given us. So, yes, it's exciting. Really good. Any other questions? You're dismissed, guys. Thank you for coming out, and we'll see you next time. Any questions, concerns, bring them up. Make sure you do your homework because you will not be graded on it.